Hi there, and welcome to Garage Night Retro Tech Podcasts. This week we're going to be discussing Nash Motors. Nash Motors was uh, founded by Charles Williams Nash in April uh, of 1916, 103 years ago. Uh, The company was founded out of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and its very first engine, Nash developed what was called the overhead valve, which is something we commonly know now as a, you know, a pushrod style engine with the valve sitting on top of the head. Uh, Back in the teens and 20s, overhead valves were not very common. In fact, overhead valve motors were, uh, were very uncommon, and I believe they were originally pioneered by Buick. Uh, the common engine of the time was a flathead, which used a, uh, which used, uh, valves that were basically positioned, uh, adjacent to the head and, uh, created kind of a poor, uh, a poor exhaust scavenging, uh, situation for performance purposes. So by moving to an overhead valve, Nash's first engine in 1917 had better power than many of the flatheads of the day. Um, something else that was interesting Nash produced um, and, and from some of their early vehicles was an unequal track width front to rear. So oftentimes on Nash cars, you'll notice that the rear axle is much wider than the front axle. And that is because it improves stability during cornering and in uncertain uh, you know, quick movements of the wheel and, um, and, and prevents kind of skittish behaviors uh, during, during driving conditions. Um, in the 30s, Nash began using synchromesh transmissions, uh, which was pretty uncommon for the day. Uh, synchromesh was uh, generally reserved for some of the more expensive cars, but Nash introduced that in some of their lower model cars and made that more accessible to the public. Uh, they also developed a centralized chassis lubrication system. This is pretty interesting. So. Back in the days, uh, cars used to have to uh, be greased, have ball joints lubricated, have kingpins lubricated, have their, uh, you know, their leaf spring uh, shackles lubricated with different types of greases and oils. And so Nash developed a system that plumbed uh, oil and, and a grease kind of a mixture into these different points. And so with a simple press of a pedal on the floor, you'd uh, press this once a day and that would force lubrication uh, into all of those joints at nine different areas in their cars. And that was introduced in the Nash 400 back in 1929. So pretty interesting stuff, pretty cool. Nowadays cars, a lot of their, a lot of the lubrication points no longer exist. Most of them are, are brass bushings or Teflon bushings and, and they require no lubrication. And in fact, most modern cars uh, recommend you do not lubricate those joints because it can attract dirt and wear. But back in the 20s and 30s, and even into the 70s, that wasn't really the case. The technology wasn't there to create dry bearings, so they would use uh, lubrication to lubricate those points. Um, something else that was interesting that Nash developed was an in-car adjustable suspension. So I couldn't find many much information on this or pictures of it, but according to what I've been reading, that they had some uh, interesting uh, suspension damping options that you can change while you were sitting inside the car. And this was back in the 30s. Pretty neat stuff. And something else we covered last week a little bit with the, uh, with the uh, Nash Quad was uh, four-wheel disc, or four-wheel brakes, not disc brakes, but four-wheel brakes. 
So Nash was one of the first auto manufacturers to bring four-wheel disc brakes to the mainstream. So to the low-end and mid-range consumers, most cars came with rear brakes only. Nash was able to uh, to uh, offer four-wheel brakes. And something else that was interesting about, interesting about Nash is they're very uh, safety focused. So a lot of the innovations that you see are very uh, safety and comfort driven. So um, keep that in mind as we go along, uh, something uh, you didn't see a lot back in the day. So in 1936, Nash created something for the traveling salesman or the traveling family who wanted to go on road trips. Uh, Nash created what was called the bed in a car feature. So Early on in the 30s, this was uh, a simple uh, arrangement where the rear seat of the car would fold back up against the front seat and you would have this large um, area to basically sleep. Your feet would extend down into the passenger or into the trunk compartment and you would rest your head up against the seat in the back. So you would kind of have your feet dangling in the trunk, have your head in the, in the, uh, in the, in the rear seat and, uh, you and your wife or your significant other at the time could, could sleep in the car, um, on your trips. Or if you were a salesman, you could sleep in the back of your car if you couldn't find a hotel. So, um, in 1949, Nash, uh, refined this system and, uh, used the front seat to recline flat. So uh, instead of having to fold down the rear seat and sleep partway in the trunk, this allowed you to sleep entirely in the passenger cabin. So the rear seat or the front seat would fold flat and you could lay directly across the front seat, which would sit flush with the rear seat. So there would be no gaps and it was comfortable. And if you were a salesman traveling on the road, you didn't have to find a hotel. You could sleep in your car in relative comfort. And in 1950, they uh, took this reclining front seat and then made it its own feature and called it airliner reclining seats. So you'd have discrete adjustment points and recline your seats. Super neat stuff that we take for granted in cars now, but in 1950, that was pretty neat. And we still don't see cars where you can camp out in the back of them or even in the passenger compartment. Personally, I think that would be great. If you ever needed to get out of town or wanted to go away for a weekend, but you really don't want to buy a trailer, Buy a 1950 Nash. You could recline the seats, take a little nap, you know, put your little picnic basket up there, hang out with your family. Sounds like a pretty good time to me. Another interesting thing Nash cars had uh, in the 30s was, um, and it was actually common for the era, but it's still kind of neat. Um, they used uh, what was considered or called uh, vacuum assisted shifting. So rather than having a shifter mounted on the floor, auto manufacturers were trying to find a way to make the floor a little bit more spacious, which nowadays we have um, in modern cars, we have a center console that runs the uh, between the two front seats. But back in the day, that was seen as, as like a hindrance. People wanted the room for legs or a third passenger to sit there. So to get the shifter out of the floor was kind of a, a tricky thing for auto manufacturers. So later it became the three on the tree, as we know um, from, in, from the 50s and 60s cars up into the 70s. But early on, they were still figuring this out. And so if you look up in, in, uh, on, online and you look at some of the Nash cars from the 30s, you'll find basically what, uh, what looks like a floor shifter coming out of the dash. And this was their vacuum-assisted shifter that was mounted in the dash. And so it would use engine vacuum to help guide the shifter in the gear to make shifting a little easier on the user so you didn't have to force it into gear or cram it into gear. Um, 
Another very interesting Nash that was produced in 1941 was called the Nash 600. And this was really the world's first, I would say, economy car. And it was also the first unibody construction car uh, mass produced. So it uh, had uh, lower weight, better aerodynamics, and had uh, substantially better fuel economy than anything else uh, of the time. And if you're not familiar with what unibody construction is, most new cars are unibody construction. It's no longer a separate frame with a body mounted to the frame. It means the frame and the body uh, are one. They're basically one structural member of the car and serve as both load bearing and cosmetic purposes. Um, by doing that, you save a lot of weight and you can actually improve rigidity in some cases. So it's it's been said that the Nash 600, the moniker 600, um, was uh, was given it was given the name 600 because of the number of miles it could travel without a fill-up, and the tank in that car was a 20-gallon tank. So that means that the Nash 600 was uh, achieving about 30 miles per gallon, which in 1941 is pretty insane. And even by today's standards, that's pretty impressive. I don't know. I can't really speak to the validity of that. It's kind of one of those things floating around that you read, but pretty impressive nonetheless to see a unibody car um, in the 40s. Um, so another interesting thing that, uh, that Nash did um, during World War II, um, the, uh, the, the, one of the founders of Nash was, uh, was a fan of using um, uh, wind tunnel testing. And so they basically used wind tunnel testing uh, to design the body of the car in the Air Flight series of Nash, which came out, I believe, in 1949. So if you look at the, at the Nash design styling from 1949 up, uh, you'll see this kind of echoed in their in their styling cues. So very bubbly, very curvy, a little different than the Chevys and the Fords of the era, but this was all a result of wind tunnel testing. Um, pretty neat, something really common uh, commonplace now in modern cars, but we didn't see a lot of back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, now, one of the most creative and interesting things Nash developed um, was the modern ventilation system inside of a car. Um, Nash called this, uh, introduced this in 1938, and it was called their conditioned air system. So this conditioned air system used air from, used fresh outside air, and, uh, and this air came in through a cow-mounted vent, cow-mounted vent, which comes in right through. If you look on your car, you'll see a cowl um, right where your wipers are typically. That's typically where uh, fresh air comes into your car. So in 1938, Nash used, uh, used this air coming in through the cowl, pass it through a heat exchanger, which was heated by engine coolant, um, which you know today is super commonplace. That's how all almost all heaters work. But back then, that was very uncommon and that was super innovative at the time. Um, Nash also specifically designed their cabins of their cars to uh, create slight positive pressure when the heater was on. So the, the, the fan-powered heater would push air into the cabin and create a positive pressure inside of the cabin. And what this helped do was eliminate leaks and drafts inside of the cabin through doors and windows. And uh, to control that pressure, they used small vents near the rear of the cabin to evacuate this pressure and control the air pressure. Super creative thinking back in 1938. 
um, very much, uh, I guess, very much inspired by kind of the Jet Jetsons era um, of that uh, uh, of design and and thinking. Um, another interesting thing: Nash was one of the uh, first, or was the first company to pioneer the disposable cabin air filter to remove uh, air contaminants from incoming air. Um, staying on the topic of ventilation, in 1939. Um, Nash created the weather eye ventilation uh, system, uh, and this was designed by Niels Wahlberg. Um, he was an engineer, I believe, working for Nash at the time. Um, it was uh, the weather eye system introduced the use of uh, thermostatic controls in its heating system, uh, and it did this by adding a thermostat to the system that was adjustable. So this created the world's first climate control system in an automobile in 1939. Um, what this system would do, it, it would the thermostat would sense the outside air temperature, it would sense the heater discharge temperature and the inside temperature of the car and adjust for any variations or fluctuations in any of those uh, conditions to create kind of a consistent uh, temperature, inside air temperature. Um, and the reason it was called the weather eye um, in advertising, Nash claimed that the thermostat's mechanical eye would watch the weather and keep the user in perfect comfort. So that is where the name Weather Eye comes from. Um, also in this year, uh, defoggers were added as, a, as an option to prevent condensation uh, and build up, uh, condensation buildup inside or on the window. Um, later on, a few years later in 1954, Nash took this Weather Eye and created what was called the All Weather Eye. So if you didn't know, in 1937, Nash acquired the refrigeration company Kelvinator. So Kelvinator was a company that would make kitchen appliances, refrigerators, all sorts of really high-end, um, uh, you know, uh, domestic uh, wear. So um, Nash uh, partnered with Kelvinator to create what was called the all-weather eye. And this was a uh, compact single-unit heating and air conditioning system that was the first mass market refrigeration system in an automobile. It used vapor refrigeration, um, similar just like modern AC systems use, although with maybe less eco-friendly uh, refrigerant. Um, and it used a single thermostat, uh, thermostat to control both the heating and cooling. So if you wanted it warmer, the, heat, the AC would turn off. If you wanted it cooler, the AC would kick on. Um, the uh, this this entire unit was small enough and portable and serviceable enough to be mounted directly inside uh, on the cowl of both the or uh, I guess all of the Nash models, the Statesman, Ambassador, and the Rambler. Um, it was one of the first systems to use dash-mounted vents and electronic control knobs, and it was the first car ever to have a fully integrated heating, cooling, and ventilation system. Um, you may recognize the weather eye from older, or uh, I guess later, AMC vehicles because um, uh, they they uh, adopted the same weather eye name for their HVAC systems later on in the 60s and 70s. So that covers Nash. I'm sorry if it was a little bit quick, but super, super interesting stuff. I really appreciate Nash, Nash's contributions to the modern automobile, stuff that we see today that we take for granted. Um, was super creative and interesting at the time. And I, uh, I hope to 
to research more, bring you guys some more interesting topics. Um, look forward to uh, the podcast coming out this Thursday, Garage Night, uh, part of the Tiny Dog Podcast Network. Um, be sure to check it out and check out the other podcasts also on that network. And uh, have yourselves a fantastic day. See you next time.